Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Brian LaRoques, co-founder and CTO at Begin.com, a ridiculously quick platform for building modern web apps, sites, and APIs. Brian also leads Architect at Arc.Codes, which is meant to build apps free from infrastructure complexity and cruft. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we talked on Twitter and then, it, then I saw some of your background. I looked at Begin.com and this just seemed like a, a really good different point that normally we haven't talked about on the podcast. So I think the, the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we've definitely taken a weird road to get to this whole uh, serverless thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, um, yeah, so I mean, going to, you know, you're doing Begin.com now. Uh, you're the co-founder, CTO. But how did that... Interested in how you actually got there. So, like, how did you start in tech, and then what was that journey? Was what did that look like? Oh wow, yeah, I'm totally down to go go back in time. <laughs> um, I I got in tech in the very late '90s, um, just as that whole internet thing got started. Uh, I got interested in in that. Um, <clears throat> I was, I guess, in my first brushes with it, I was pumping gas at uh, a Mohawk station. And I remember my roommate and I saved up a bunch of money, and we we bought this software called Hot Metal Pro, which uh, let us create the HTMLs. Which, um, yeah, that kind of got me into it. And then you know, uh, the years prevailed, and uh, I've worked in all kinds of different roles ever since uh, those early days on the internet. And I guess sort of semi more recently, though not all that recent, I got really excited about mobile. And uh, I was deep on that for a while, doing iOS, Android uh, dev, but for the web. And um, through that process, I ended up building something that got a fair amount of traffic and um, had to scale. And it was early days in the cloud. And that sort of led me into this serverless thing. I, um, once you've sort of scaled a large system, a large distributed system, um, you know, load balancers, you know, Redis for the cache, or Rails backend, Postgres, but sharded. You know, once you've been down that road, you know, you look for other options. <laughs> and uh, I think that, you know, it was around 2015, I was in um, San Francisco and I went to the AWS summit and they announced uh, API Gateway it was sometime in the summer. And as soon as I saw that, I knew uh, that's where I wanted to be. Uh, I didn't, I didn't want to deal with the you know, IP tables, patching my Linux servers and downtime and rolling deploys. I just wanted to write my runtime logic and, and have something create an HTTP endpoint for me. And um, yeah, I've been a, been a big fan ever since. I actually thought in 2015, wow, I'm really late to this. So <laughs> just goes to show that, uh, you know, you can never be too late to something. Um but yeah, the serverless thing has definitely accelerated in those last five years, and, and uh, I'm all in nowadays. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Uh, it's cool to hear like the full thing of like pumping gas, learning about like HTML, getting started, and then scaling out some crazy thing that led you to uh, serverless. And then you know, kind of seeing how that that played out. Um, you know, from from my perspective, looking at it, uh, it seems like a few of the projects that you've worked on have had like a strong focus on like efficiency. Um, did that stem from the project that you mentioned where you had to kind of scale out the traffic? Yeah, well, um, my big thing has been developer velocity for quite a long time. And uh, so the, the project that it, you know led to me doing a bunch of cloud stuff is called PhoneGap. And this isn't very intuitive because it's a, 
it's a client side framework. It's a it's a framework for taking HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and turning it into uh, iOS and Android apps. Um, but when we were doing that, uh, we started to make most of our revenue from training, and we did one training in particular, and it was a total disaster. We had a room full of um, developers that were all on Windows, and they expected that they were going to build iOS apps. And so that was our impetus to to put PhoneGap in the cloud. And um, yeah, that team grew quite big. So at, at one point, I think we had over 30 people, uh, and we broke them up into smaller independent teams. And then the wider open source project probably had over 200 people committing at one point. And coordinating a lot of independent small teams uh, to work in parallel uh, can be quite challenging. And so a lot of my my career in the, I'd say, the last decade has been more focused on uh, how to achieve better developer velocity through parallelizing that work and coordinating uh, small teams. And this is really well suited to serverless and um, and the cloud itself. And so, yeah, the efficiency thing is a thing. I think there's also, um, you know, just the drive of being at startups for a long time. You you sort of lose your focus on on the ornamentation and ceremony and you start to focus heavily on the utility of things and if you're if we even like step back for a second and just talk about the general philosophy of serverless it's it's about not doing undifferentiated heavy lifting it's not really about functions it's not really about cloud it's about outsourcing the stuff that you don't do as a core business value add and focusing only on what you do uh, as a value add. And so serverless in many ways is about doing less, um, less stuff, but better. And then taking that undifferentiated work and outsourcing it to the most likely person to do a better job than you, which, you know, I've, I've concluded would be Amazon. There's more than one cloud and there's more than one way to do this. Um, but they're the safe boring bet. That's for sure. Um, I like the idea that, uh, the way that you described the philosophy of serverless about doing less, but better. And I definitely think that, in a lot of cases, I found myself like pre-serverless. I would try to like build a lot more stuff. And then now that I'm like taking advantage of fully managed services all over the place, now I'm looking like, well, can I just get rid of doing the front end completely? Can I just use some other solution? Right. Is there some third-party service where I don't have to do this back-end code anymore? Because doing the authentication part, let me just abstract that with Amplify or something. How have you seen uh, in your teams that you've worked on, Like, how have you seen that kind of uh, take place? And have you seen that, uh, that kind of culture shift? Yeah, this is uh, not always something that people want to do. I think um, it's, it's tricky when you're when you're a founder of a startup. It's very easy to come to the conclusion that we need to focus on our core value. We're not going to, you know, get more customers just because we chose Vue over React. That's that's not a differentiator for us. Um, getting to market faster is a differentiator for us. Getting uh, more iterations out quicker is a differentiator for us. Um, but the, the the tool selection itself doesn't necessarily have to be um, driven by what's popular or by what's um, something you maybe even already know. Like I know how to set up a web server with both Apache and you know Mod PHP or Rails or whatever. And uh, just because I know that doesn't mean it's the best solution for the job. The best solution for the job for me is whatever I can get up there the quickest and have the fastest iteration speed on. And, and the least amount of maintenance. Uh, I don't want to spend time patching, you know, this version of Rake or whatever, this week's flavor of JavaScript framework. I want to spend time, you know, adding value for my customers. And that's easy as a founder. But when you're, you know, 
earlier in your career, you're, you're newer at this stuff, um, and you haven't maybe suffered uh, a whole lot of battle scars, and you, you might only know one way to do things, or you've heard that there's this popular way of doing things, and so therefore that would be the safest way to do it. And, and there's not really a wrong answer here. Um, you know, technology takes an investment of time. I would conjecture that the hard part here, though, is people, and it isn't necessarily the technology. And, and people are messy. You know, sometimes people really do feel vehemently that they need that particular testing library or that particular load balance or whatever it is. And uh, moving serverless is a big abdication of that responsibility. And it's kind of admitting to yourself that, oh, you know what, maybe I'm not as good at as load balancing as Amazon is. Or maybe, maybe I should just let that cache live, you know, in DynamoDB instead of trying to stand up my own Redis cluster. And as you get farther along that sort of scale of thinking, eventually it's very easy to abdicate because you know uh, where your core value is and you can focus all of your energy into doing those those things that you know that your business can do best uh, for that customer. And it's a process. It'll, it'll never end, I don't think. Uh, I think, you know, the move to services is going to create some pretty unexpected outcomes for people. If you rely on a lot of distributed services, You've also created a lot of potential complexity for data consistency. You've created um, a lot of potential points of failure. So you'll have to learn how to deal with those things independently um, of making the choice to outsource. And they're all solvable, but um, it's definitely not a trade-off free environment. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, the complexity of service, uh, service, I keep trying to say serviceful, but I guess that's accurate. Yeah, the complexity of actually moving to uh, serverless is that initially on the surface, it's like, oh, yeah, just take your Lambda code or take your Node.js code, drop it on a Lambda function, and you're set. Um, and obviously, obviously, you know that after you start getting something working, it's like, you know, you end up having hundreds of services all interacting with each other. And there's all like these different edge points and like knowledge that's required to like use, you know, SQS or an SNS service. Um, how have you seen like, how have you combated that? Yeah, ramp up is a real challenge right now. And I think everyone's feeling that uh, as they move to the cloud, there's uh, a lot of different vendors, first of all, and choosing a vendor is a big thing. A lot of people want to uh, defer that decision by moving to like solutions that promise multi-cloud, um, which I feel it's too early to do. And that's sort of a false promise. Um, you're going to be able to deploy to two clouds, but you won't be able to do workloads between two clouds without a lot of heavy lifting. And that's not what we're about. So you kind of got to pick a cloud. And, you know, if you can get there, your chances of being successful are a lot higher because you can focus your energy on learning that cloud really well, be it AWS, Azure, or any of the other players. I think that part's tricky. The other part that's tricky is that these uh, clouds are all operating at an extreme velocity because they're trying to win the market. We're still in the early days, and we know the market will consolidate around a few large players. Most likely, those players are AWS and Azure, but you know we don't know. It's still pretty early, and no one's letting their foot off the gas. GCP's investing heavily, Alibaba's investing heavily, and so I think we can expect to see that to continue. And and if that is the case, um, Amazon's not going to slow down, and neither is Azure. And the way that they they achieve their velocity is by having lots of small teams. And because they have lots of small teams, we have lots of disparate products with bad integration. If you go through the console, you can see it reflected in the UI. If you look at their SDKs, you can see it reflected in their APIs. And there's real no easy solution to this one. It's a, it's a big elephant. 
And just like any big problem, you have to solve it, you know, the same way that we solve all big problems. And that's one one bite at a time. We're going to take that elephant down, Edia, very slowly. Um, the good news is there's been a lot of people ahead of you on this journey. And um, we're leaving breadcrumbs behind us. So Architect, the project, uh, the open source core that I work on is a very good example of this. We We've been there. Uh, we've been building serverless apps now for five years, and uh, a lot of that those learnings have been encrusted in, in that code. And so you can run NPM install and get those five years of experience uh, as a head start. It's not going to get you the whole way there. There's over 300 services in Amazon, and we subset it deliberately to about 12 so that we're just focused solely on the web app use case. Um, you can build other classes of app using CloudFormation, which we're completely compatible with, but um, we're really tuned to just build those web apps. And it turns out there's only about 12 services you need to build web apps. You don't need all 300 plus services from Amazon uh, to stand up a web page. You actually only need a few. And that's that's our big trick for uh, getting people onboarded quickly. But yeah, the minutia is, is serious. The nuance is there. Uh, the complexity is there. It's real. And it's growing. I don't. I don't think I'm going to be able to master completely everything that Amazon does in my lifetime, and I'm, I've accepted that. That's okay because I don't want to know all of that. Yeah, <laughs> I figured out the corners that make sense for me, and I'm really happy with them. And and those primitives are so powerful. You know, they power Amazon.com itself, so they're going to work for your use case too. The complexity of serverless. I totally agree. Like the ramp up, um, definitely something that that you were just talking about, and the idea of like getting people that never interacted with it to actually get on board. Um, and then, you know, the multi-cloud question, obviously that that's, that's a whole rabbit hole in itself. Um, yeah. I like towards the, yeah, towards the end, you started getting into uh, almost like describing the benefits of architect and, and potentially even begin.com if I'm following, do you mind giving uh, more of a description about like what architect and, and what begin.com and how those things got started and what led you to working on them? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when, um, when I left uh, working on the PhoneGap project at Adobe, it was around 2015. And at that time, uh, I was responsible for uh, monitoring a lot of the analytics that we had uh, about mobile growth. And I had learned that the app stores were actually slowing in growth. And um, it's somewhat stalled out, and which is not good prospects for your, your career if that's your job to look at those things. So <laughs> I started to pay attention to where was all the attention going? Like What, what were people doing? And uh, people were, were rapidly moving into messaging platforms with their attention. Uh, places like um, Facebook's Messenger, WhatsApp, Slack, and the such. So the initial uh, thing I did when I got out of Adobe was start a startup with Ryan Block that was focused on um, Slack. We were going to build a Slack bot. And uh, we were aiming to do something in the productivity space because we felt that a lot of businesses were going to get online and they were going to move to real-time chat and that they were going to need their productivity tools there. Uh, we made a, a miscalculation in that we didn't realize that Slack uh, wouldn't have a security model that really was attractive to the enterprise uh, for installing third-party apps. And so we didn't have much of a business there, but we built it serverlessly. And and this was 2015. Serverless framework um, didn't exist. It was called JAWS at that time. Uh, CloudFormation didn't support anything. Like there was no no CloudFormation support, so we had to build our own framework. And we, the framework we built is called Architect. 
we open sourced it in 2017. Um, initially, it was just based on SDK calls, and we created uh, our own manifest format um, for doing infrastructure as code. So in my previous incarnations, I was very much a fan of configuration management tools like Puppet and Ansible and such uh, for you know, dealing with servers. And I wanted the same thing for serverless. And my ideal would have been to use CloudFormation, but CloudFormation didn't support anything I wanted to support. And there just really wasn't an infra's code solution for serverless, so we created one. Uh, serverless Framework obviously did the same thing and uh, got a much better .com than we did, so it's much more popular. Um, but that's totally okay. We didn't uh, create a free open source project um, to compete. That, that's not a very good business model if we did. We created it because we needed it. And in specifically, we needed it to build a product that was real-time and had a web component to it, a strong web component. Now, if you've ever built a Slack bot, it's basically webhooks. So uh, we had really strong real-time requirements. Uh, we had um, a need for our lambdas to cold start sub-second. And so we couldn't do the fat lambda pattern. We had to build you know, one lambda per, per route as it were, or uh, single responsibility principle lambdas, as some people like to call them. And that really led us to building out Architect in the, in the way that we did. If you look at serverless framework or any of the other ones, they kind of look monolithic-y. They, they sort of push you in this direction to build things the way we used to build things. And we didn't really have the luxury of designing something that was going to be the way that we used to do things. We had to build something that responded sub-second. And so we had to build something that had small lambda payloads because your lambda size payload uh, correlates to your cold start time. Can't have a bot get a message and then respond to you three times because it got retried. That would be a bad user experience. You also can't have a bot that responds to you a minute or two later because the cold start was bad. That would also be a bad experience. So we needed lightning fast um, cold starts, and and that led us to this this design. We didn't want to own that code outright. Having your own framework is a really bad idea. Um, so we open sourced that and donated it to the OpenJS Foundation, uh, which used to be uh, the Node Foundation and um, the jQuery Foundation, but they merged into the OpenJS Foundation today. It gets used quite a bit. There's thousands of apps out there. There's a lot of consultancies picking it up that are doing web-facing stuff. Um, there's government use. There's some enterprise use, uh, which we know of because they're requesting all kinds of weird features from us, like FIPS support. It's the Federal Information Processing Standard, which I've never heard of before. Um, but, you know, that kind of thing is happening. And those are great signs. They're signs of both stability and usage. So so we're happy with where Architect's at. Um, that original bot company didn't work out. Uh, but the Begin.com domain was pretty awesome. And um, we had a lot of interest in how we were building it. And so... <laughs> People weren't really interested in our bot, but they were interested in how we had built it. They could see Architect, and we showed off our CI/CD around a little bit, and uh, we had a lot of early interest, uh, strong signals that people wanted to pay for something like that. So we pivoted the company, and uh, we became a CI/CD tool for cloud formation. And so Begin.com right now, the free tier is all about Architect because we can uh, do that a little better because that's what it was designed for. Um, but the begin.com sort of larger vision is that you can deploy any cloud formation to AWS through a super slick interface. Um, and yeah, that's what we're doing today. Um, there are thousands of people using begin.com now, I can happily say, uh, deploying cloud formation every day. 
Sadly, they weren't able to deploy it for a window of about eight hours last night because GitHub changed their headers for webhooks. So I was working on a, uh, a blog post and email about that one. Um, that's kind of just the way it goes. You know, software development, there's always going to be problems. Luckily, we caught that one pretty quick and, and we were able to patch it before many people had, had experienced it. Um, but yeah, we do we do basic CI CD. And the thing that we do major differently than other CI CD is that we are very uh, serverless aware. And so serverless doesn't have uh, a, a great deal of deep understanding about how what, what all the benefits are. But one of the big benefits is that you get this isolation at the per function level. You don't have to do this with all frameworks, but, but you can. Architect, you end up doing this because it's how it's designed you end up with lots of functions. You get one for every URL, you get one for every SNS event, you get one for every SQS event, that kind of thing. And because you have all these tiny functions, we can parallelize deployment and we can do Delta deployment, which means that we can deploy in like sub one minute, sometimes sub 10 seconds. And a lot of people are like, well, that's kind of a parlor trick. I don't need to deploy in sub 10 seconds. And, and no, you probably don't. And you probably have tests that run a little bit longer than that. But the point here is that we want to get our lead time to production to zero, not, you know, good enough. <laughs> and, and the companies that do have the lowest lead time to production have the fastest iteration speeds. And the companies with the fastest iteration speeds are the ones that are going to get bugs fixed faster, that are going to get to product market fit faster, that are going to beat out their competition with more features faster. So it's just a desirable end state that you want to get to. And, and serverless in general as a property will get you a lot closer to that reality. And um, we feel that last generation CI CD tools are still thinking about things in this monolithic, you know, big ball of code deployment, canary my, my load balancer kind of way. Whereas we're thinking about things as parallel deployment of deltas of small bits of code that can happen almost instantaneously. And that's a big difference. And I think a huge strategic advantage for companies that adopt this way of thinking. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a ton. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I just I, unloaded on you there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, because you just gave like the listeners like a full, there's the full rundown of both architect and begin.com. So I think that's fantastic. Um, one question I would have is like, as you're continuing to work with begin.com uh, and build that out, what is, I think you mentioned that you're hoping to work more uh, infrastructure as code deployments or maybe frameworks or cloud formation into the platform. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Architect just generates CloudFormation documents and deploys those. Um, but we have another sort of hack because we generated the CloudFormation document. We know everything about it. We can create those least privileged roles. We know where all your functions are so we can run Delta updates directly without going through CloudFormation. We can do a whole bunch of extra stuff. But what we found is we got more users. Lots of people already have stuff. <laughs> you know, they've already deployed uh you know, serverless framework. They actually, we have one customer who has a ton of Cloudia apps. Um, we know of people out there that are integrating right now heavily with Terraform because they've already got existing workloads running with these other solutions. So it, it only makes sense to us that we'll be able to support those solutions too. Uh, we want to be able to let you use what you want to deploy. Um, we're just going to make the architect experience kind of the de facto free tier entry point because. That's where we're seeing most of the interest. It's kind of our top of funnel. And uh, we think there's some advantages to it. You know, we, we know we can deploy it faster, and we know that it's got better characteristics for working locally and uh, for building web apps. So it should be a nice marriage. 
I don't know how long it's going to take us. We just got the CloudFormation stuff going, and we're looking at uh, how to do both Terraform and uh, SDK-based deployments. Terraform uses the AWS SDK. It doesn't use um, CloudFormation under the hood, which could be considered bad depending on your perspective. Um, serverless framework, weirdly, has gone this direction as well. So it's something that we're trying to figure out the best way to isolate and set up. Yeah, uh, something that's interesting about that is the uh, the cloud formation versus SDK, or I think the CDK is, I, apparently Terraform also uses the SDK underneath it, not cloud formation. Um, have y'all have y'all found any limitations with, with using cloud formation, or what, what is your perspective on, on that I was conversation? Pre- well, I was pretty not into it. Uh, in the early days because uh, I had to patch over it with um, custom resources quite a bit, which sort of defeated the purpose. Um, but as soon as Amazon started supporting all the primitives that I was using, I, I, I didn't have that problem anymore. So the CloudFormation support now is, is much better for the serverless primitives than it used to be. And new products seem to be getting online right away. They're not always doing this. Uh, EventBridge is a notable exception. Uh, when that launched, it didn't necessarily have all the CloudFormation support that you wanted. And you, you kind of have to ask yourself if this is you know, important to you. If you're cool not being you know, day zero capable of leveraging CloudFormation, you can still use the SDK. So you don't have to uh, lock yourself out of anything, uh, but you probably just don't want to. You, know, you want that determinism, reproducibility, the audit trail, and the ability to do the governance and compliance all from one view of uh, your your application world. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with using the SDK to deploy. I do think that um, it's just a lot more code. So the original architect uh, used only SDK calls. And I did a talk at ServerlessConf in November uh, about this, but we deleted about 18,000 lines of code when we moved to CloudFormation. And um, we added functionality when we did that. Now, that isn't because uh, CloudFormation's, you know, some genius thing or that we, we learned something that, that was special. It's because uh, when you're writing SDK calls, you have to consider retry and back off and throttling. And so uh, SDK calls will fail. And it's not, it's not even a question of whether or not they will fail. They will fail. And if you're doing a bunch of them uh, for setting something up, something's going to fail. So you have to catch every possible error and obey its retry and back off rules. This gets really exacerbated if you have any parallelism. So, you know, like two developers. <laughs> if you had like two developers trying to uh, stand up a Dynamo table at the same time, bad things can happen. And um, the nice thing about CloudFormation is you describe the outcome declaratively, of what you want, and Amazon takes care of all that parallelism and retry and back off and failure code for you. And it's a huge reduction in code, but it's also a reduction in your liability uh, and maintenance, right? So less code is always a, a thing that you kind of want to aim for. Now, the problem with CloudFormation is that it's extremely verbose. The docs are pretty arcane, and um, the errors of it are, are not great. You know, when something fails, it fails in a spectacular way without a very good error uh, for you. So a lot of people wrap it with tools. Architect is one of those tools. The CDK is another one of those tools um, where you take a higher level definition and then we generate a CloudFormation document from that, deterministically, ideally. Um, in the case of Architect, it would be deterministic because you're taking one declarative 
thing and you're turning it into another declarative thing. In the case of the CDK, it's not deterministic. You're actually opting out of that because you're using imperative code to generate a cloud formation document. I don't think it's that bad. And I don't think this is like something to be worried about. And I think the CDK is a great addition to the, the ecosystem and, and a necessary one. Uh, it's, a, it's a good way to get started. It's a great way to build components and, and to get you know, comfortable with cloud formation. But I think if you truly want to master it, you probably are going to want to master cloud formation. And you're, you're still going to need to understand how cloud formation works in order to understand how the CDK works. So you, you don't really get to opt out of that part, um, but you can definitely make it a lot easier on yourself. And then serverless framework, I think, went this way because they are doing their, um, they have their sort of their new version called components. And it looks to me like they're trying to build their own sort of declarative language for like Legoing system components together. And the SEK is going to give them the you know total control to do that. You you can't do that if um, you know you're just vanilla cloud formation. So just trade-offs. They, these aren't like you know good or bad. These are just like considerations that you have to you know make when you're deciding what you build. And, I think for the developers out there that are hearing all this crazy complexity and these different approaches, it's it's cool. Like uh, you know, try and build a web app um, with CDK. Try and build a web app with serverless, and try and build a web app with with Architect. Each one, give yourself a day, and just see what what works for you. You know, like if you're a Ruby dev, you you might be really down on doing it with the CDK, and I couldn't say that I'd blame you. I mean, you could probably build something pretty sweet that way, and have you know all your familiar tools to do it. If you're just doing front-end um, kind of basic web apps, uh, look at Architect, but also check out Amplify uh, from from Amazon. It's another great way to get started with this world, and you know both generate cloud formation. Chances are, if you're at a big company, you've already got a couple of these things going, anyways. So it's um, I don't think it's going to be a world where there's only one way to do stuff. That seems unlikely to me. Yeah, no, that's a yeah for like. It- Definitely see how it can seem extremely complex, all the different variations of things. But I, I, I totally agree with the advice of just like start with something simple, you know, outcome in mind. I'm going to build a web app and then use the thing that that basically you want to try out. Take some time, work with multiple options. Um, I think that's really solid advice. Um, another area, since this kind of leads into the question I was going to ask anyways. Um, do you have any other advice for people that are getting started with either cloud or serverless? and have you seen any things while working with large teams or so many individuals that like kind of helped uh, ramp them up on these technologies? Yeah, I've seen a couple of patterns that, that work really well. And it, it's usually when you come in with a very isolated, tiny project and try and get rid of a server. So the classic example is uh, you've got a server and its sole responsibility is to run a cron job once a day to do a thing. Back up a database, aggregate some data email somebody a PDF, whatever. And and take that code, don't turn it off, leave it running in its crawling shop. <laughs> and, uh, and try and do the same thing with EventBridge. And, you know, set up the, the SAM document to create a scheduled function. Um, and then, you know, copy pasta that code over. And, and that's usually when people get hooked. They'll start with just one little tiny corner and then build up from there. What you don't want to do is, you know, fall prey to second system system syndrome and try and rebuild the world. Um, serverless works really best incrementally adopted, and that that incremental adoption will accelerate as your team gets on board, as more people get on board, and as you as you grow those skills. And that's that's probably the way to go. Um, 
I also have a recommendation for folks that are thinking this way. They should. Um, there's a dude named Sheen Bristols. He uh, did uh, the closing keynote at Serverless Conf. He's from Lego, um, the awesome Lego that you played with as a kid. Turns out they also have a store, and that store is all serverless. And uh, he does a great talk at Serverless Conf about their journey uh, from just starting with one tiny little corner, and then finally, you know, now the whole e-commerce side of their business is running serverlessly, which is really impressive and uh, a great use case for um, how this can happen. I've seen the other thing happen too. And I think that it's a cautionary tale. It's worth telling. So um, very common that people will take their node server. A lot of like frameworks out there say, oh, we're just standard node, which whatever that means. There's like a thousand different node servers. But anyways, they'll take their probably express web server and they'll put that in the Lambda function. And that will work. And that will work for a while. But the problem is that that's a monolithic function now. And as you add code to that function, it will get slower to cold start. And there's a myth that you can fix this by pinging your functions. We call lambda warmers. And I think I have to do a duty to the serverless community here and explain that this doesn't fix cold starts. There's a thing called provision capacity that fixes cold starts that lets you pick a number of instances of lambda containers that will be warm. Um, but pinging a Lambda, while it does keep it alive, it doesn't actually help your performance problem. All you did was hide it. You still have a performance problem. And if, if you really want to fix that performance problem, what you want to do is have small functions. And so putting a web server inside of a Lambda function is an anti-pattern, in my view. I think it's a great way to get started, um, but it's definitely not your end game. And if that's where you know you want to begin your serverless journey, cool, but do it knowing that you're going to break that up later into single responsibility principle functions. And you're going to lock those down to the least privilege, and they're going to cold start instantaneously. And that's the, the sort of right way to build things out. What you don't want to do is put your whole front-end web app in a Lambda function, <laughs> serving it through Express, because that thing will fall apart, and uh, you'll have a bad day. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I'm, I'm happy that you brought up what not to do as well. Um, I think that's really good. Also, Sheen Bristles was actually uh, our last podcast guest. So oh, it hasn't. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's really, really good timing. There you um, go. So it has, it hasn't come out yet. But by the time you're listening to this, listeners, if you're in the future, uh, that episode might already be out. Uh, so that'd be cool. That's um, cool. That's great. Yeah, it was really great to talk to to Sheen. He's hearing about the Lego and like how he got started and they actually migrated to serverless was super interesting. Um, yeah, that story. Yeah. I mean, I love Lego to begin with, and so there's some. There's just a nice symmetry from the Legos to, to Lambda, just in general, because these feel like Legos. You know, you can sort of bolt them in, and they're cheap and easy to replace, and you can build anything. And and uh, yeah, I, I love that that talk at Serverless Conf. I found it super inspiring because big companies tend not to change. You know, they mm. they have their legacy investment, and um, they're protecting it at all costs. So it really speaks to his leadership that he was able to pull that off. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, it's like the perfect, yeah, it's like the perfect case study for start small, slowly work up, and then you see what they have now. And it's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's like, it's impressive. It's insane. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, I would I would ask one question. So you mentioned around having smaller functions and that being a little bit uh, shorter cold starts. How have like, what would be a recommendation for keeping your functions small? Do you limit how many third party uh, packages you're importing? What have been strategies that that you've seen um we found it was it was enough just to actually log how big they were 
So uh, we used to fail our build at five megabytes, but then we realized that we only care about the cold start of our uh, hot path get handlers. So things that the, the web facing users are going to experience. We realize that, you know, an SNS function, if that takes five seconds, who cares? It, it, it's asynchronous. It's going on in the background. Same thing with SQS or EventBridge or basically anything. Like, I don't care if a Dynamo stream was a few seconds behind. Uh, but if my web server doesn't respond within one second, then, you know, I'm losing money. So I think in general, um, for us, we don't fail builds anymore. We used to do this. So we used to say five megabytes was the magic number. Anything under five megs would cold start sub-second, and that would be acceptable. Um, now we just log it. And we're, I wouldn't say really disciplined. Uh, I know that we've got a couple of Lambda functions that are like 50 megs because we bundle like Puppeteer and Git inside of them. And we should probably make those Lambda layers, but we haven't gotten around to it. Um, but yeah, uh, I think as long as your your CI CD system and your whatever you're using to deploy, if you happen to use Architect to deploy, you'll you'll see a printout every time you deploy of what each function's uh, payload weight is, and uh, just keep an eye on that. You know, as long as you have some visibility into the problem, it tends to uh, go away. The oh, one other thing that I did that helps a lot, um, I have a I have a CloudWatch event that sends a notification uh, whenever our um, Whenever we have a cold start on a get request, that is longer than two seconds, I think. So I gave myself an extra second there. And every now and again, that thing fires, and I find out that we accidentally had a, a dependency or a sub-dependency update that pushed our Lambda function over five megs and, and go in there and delete it or whatever. And that usually is enough. Um, it's, it's definitely not easy, though, with Node.js, Node modules. There's... A tendency to bloat, and it's a it's a it's a hard habit to break. You know, developers want to just go straight for npm install, and um, I would encourage listeners to suppress that urge and to try and write some of the code themselves as much as they can. Yeah, that, that's great advice. Um, okay, so uh, if it's less than five or is five, then you're going to have much faster cold starts. Uh, some ways that you can combat that uh, while you're writing code is. You know, potentially fail to build if if you're uh, if you're on that that more path, and then otherwise logging uh, works as well. Um, it's nice to hear that Architect has that functionality built in as well. That's good. Um, and then I think the the idea of using uh, making sure that client lambdas are isolated, and you kind of have that understanding that these are client facing lambdas. These ones need to be as fast as possible. These ones are attached to other resources as event triggers, and they can be two seconds long yeah or whatever even longer like you know mm -hmm. it, and it really does depend on the business case i've seen dashboards inside the enterprise that take 10 20 seconds to load and you know sometimes that's just how it goes and, and i should say there's another trick here and uh, the ultimate kind of um, expression of being serverless would be to outsource the undifferentiated heavy lifting and there is a strong argument to be made that every lambda you have is undifferentiated heavy lifting if you can outsource it somewhere else. And so there's a, a popular pattern um, in the original API gateway REST APIs uh, for doing service integrations where you would uh, directly hook your API gateway to Dynamo or S3 with no Lambda middleman. And I think that's kind of the philosophy uh, that you want to gun for. So, you know, your first line of defense is going to be, can I make this Lambda smaller? 
but maybe the, the thought exercise is always worth ex- asking, do I even need this lambda function at all? <laughs> can I get rid of it? And, or can I call it less is another, another way. So many of our get functions um, live behind CloudFront. Can I use my CDN better? You know, Is it necessary to call the lambda every time? Or can we cache these values for a minute or something? And um, the other hack is, uh, you know, this is adding code now, but the other hack uh, is to rely heavily on asynchronous functions uh, like SNS and SQS and to use WebSockets to pipe feedback to the client. And this pattern is not very well adopted yet because I think it's a bit of, it's a bit early for WebSockets in the serverless world, but uh, API Gateway nailed this. They have an amazing pattern. Uh, you get three Lambda functions, uh, connect, disconnect, and uh, de- default. And uh, those will fire um, when you think they would. When a client connects, you get the connect Lambda. When the client disconnects, you get a disconnect Lambda. And all the other messages that get sent um, go through default. Um, so what you can do is use SNS to do your heavy lifting, and then you pipe data back through this default Lambda to your clients to show progress. Uh, it's a pattern we're using for begin.com, which is CI/CD. So we have lots of slow running stuff and uh, it works really great. It feels very snappy in real time, even though things aren't actually moving all that fast under the hood. Gotcha. So in that case, uh, you know, when you're, I'll probably comment on both. The async one, uh, when it, is that going from API gateway and then uh, just to a Lambda and it's responding immediately, but putting something into a queue or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So it's a very common pattern for us. We'll have API Gateway, the Lambda handler for posts, whatever. Uh, let's say we're building a contact form, so post contact. Post contact won't do anything. It'll just relay the event up to either SQS or SNS. And then that Lambda will do the heavy lifting, whatever it is, talking to databases, sending out analytics, sending emails, creating PDFs, you know, you name it. So the user experience is they posted a form and they're immediately redirected. And there's no lag, you know, like 10 millisecond kind of thing. It just immediately redirects. And then this thing's going on in the background um, inside of a SNS or SQS whenever whenever it completes. And ideally, you know, you're, you're piping that uh, data, that feedback right back into the client, creating PDF or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then the other one was... Uh... Uh, I think this one's really interesting. This is something that I observed as well. And then it's something that like I found, I've, I circle back to things over and over again. And then I'm like, oh man, I thought about this like six months ago, but then I completely forgot. Yeah. Uh, it's like when AWS AppSync came out and they had the ability to have like these mapping templates without any Lambda function. And of course, API Gateway does that as well, which you touched on. I, I feel like that is something that uh, there was like a, what the what does the future look like potentially? It's like if based on what you're saying around serverless philosophy and kind of you know outsourcing these things, if you can have a direct connection to the resource, then all the lambda code in between that is just like so much overhead debugging, security, you have to maintain it, update it, yeah. security. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just overhead. And if we can declaratively define these relationships um, between our data and our our consuming data store and our client, um, then why not? You know, what's the point in having an imperative runtime in the middle there? That's just going to be brittle. And um, what we, the problem is right now, VTL is not the language for this. We need, some, <laughs> no. we need something that's like a little bit more friendly 
written in uh, Java templating language. I don't know what that is, but I'm, I'm hopeful that the pattern awareness is there. A lot of serverless practitioners talk about this thing. I don't even know if there's a term for this. It's like it's somewhere on the serverless spectrum, but it's like the most extreme version of it where there's like no runtime at all. And uh, yeah, I'm excited by it. I think we might need a new programming language in order to achieve its fullest possibility. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think we're, we're kind of coming up on time. So uh, closing out, do you have anything to shout out or promote? Oh, uh, yeah. Check out begin.com. Sign up. It's free. Uh, we deploy to our AWS. And then if uh, you want to pay us money, we'll deploy to yours. And um, if you're stoked on how that works or interested in looking under the hood, uh, it's basically all open source. You can check out the source code at arc.codes. And yeah, hit me up on Twitter anytime. If anybody has any questions, I'm always, always happy to talk about this stuff. Perfect. Well, yeah, I know that this was super insightful for me. It's kind of like, I'm glad that we could go really, really deep into it. Um, that was kind of cool. Um, awesome. Yeah. So thanks again, Brian, for being on the podcast. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. And to those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast hosted by Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to know more, check out TalkingServerless.io or please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we talk with another fantastic serverless guest.